What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other lines, my coping cowboys, it's Andy Greenwald and Sean Fennessy. Neither neither of us know how to respond to that. We're I'm thrilled. Just, I'm just I'm so blessed to be here on my favorite podcast. I've been saying for ten consecutive years this is my favorite podcast, and I'm just so honored to be invited back on after. I'm glad it's direct deposit still years, works. I think since I was last year with you guys, yeah, it's been a while. That's terrible, but that's that's also because Joe Rogan hasn't been on the air for ten years. I think is that right? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Once 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 he crosses the ten year mark, then my new number give one him, rises. Give him time. Uh, we're so so thrilled to have the big pictures Sean Fennessy my buddy Sean Fennessy our buddy Sean Fennessy Sean hasn't been on the watch since the beginning of the pandemic when we did a home and home with the big picture Andy so we really we're being truant we're being really like undisciplined in terms of getting Sean on the pod regularly Chris you haven't done any podcasts with him since then either right (laughs) I I haven't seen him I haven't spoken with him I I mean I I only listen to Merit and Fresh Air so I wouldn't know but I assume that you are as pure as I am. Reunited I am, and yeah, it feels no. so good. Sean, it's great to see you. I thought we could talk a little bit of general entertainment industry topics in the beginning. And then uh, we're going to talk about Copenhagen Cowboy, which is the new series from Nicholas Winning Raffin. It's on Netflix. NWR, as he likes to refer to himself, is a bit of a mm-hmm. pet project for me and Sean. We're very excited about this thing coming. Uh, we have a lot to say about it. I'm sure Andy has also watched three episodes of this. Sean and I both finished the series, so well, we'll have a rolling conversation that kind of takes in the it, first half of the season and then the second. Am I wrong that you guys were angel investors in this? Because I'm trying to like run the numbers, and I know Netflix has been like, you know, just trying to... T- all companies really have been tightening their belts. So I figured that you guys maybe just kicked a couple kroner next way <laughs> to see this project through because you also are passionate about human disposal and pigs. I'm just right? passionate about storytelling, you yeah. know, and, and and empowering our great voices. And um, <laughs> yes. I was happy to provide 
uh, several million euros to the Netflix Corporation <laughs> to get this thing on the air. I think it would be really interesting if Netflix turned to a GoFundMe model. And it was like, if you guys want the second season of 1899, fucking stump it up. Let's go. <laughs> what would Nick Reffin offer on a sort of like Eurozone Kickstarter? For oh, this it would show? probably be like to like publicly humiliate you in front of your wife. You know what I mean? Like it would just be like for $10,000, he would call me a puny little man in front of Phoebe. <laughs> I'd be like, yes, so- daddy, do it again. So Sean and I have just financially committed to this project. <laughs> we're in. No, fellow sharks, I think we're in. Hey, so Is, bef- before we... Oh, go ahead, Sean. Sorry. Well, I just want to know if that was a projection of any kind, Chris. The, the puny little man, there was a specificity to that that was impressive. Well, I mean, like, I think he, he and I are probably... A, if I had to guess, I think he and I are about the same height. But there's mm-hmm. something kind of... Um, there's a, there's a little bit of masochism that goes along with either watching his movies, but also watching him talk to William Friedkin, one of my favorite <laughs> pastimes, and having him be like, my movie is a masterpiece, and then Friedkin being like, you are a moron. Uh, so I like the idea that like yeah. somewhere inherent in the, in the NWR fandom, there's a little bit of like self-flagellation. We have Sean on, Andy, so I don't think we could pass up the opportunity to talk a little bit about... It's award season. We're we're going on Monday. Sean is the big picture goes. Are you going to go after the Golden Globe, Sean? Or we are. Yeah. Whew, man, just burning the midnight oil. Uh, the Hollywood Foreign Press. Thanks you for your service. Um, it <laughs> financially, is, also, financially. This is also, this yeah. is all a slush fund. The financial. The Foreign Press pays Sean. Sean pays the Copenhagen Film Community. I see the big picture now. I'm um, happy to launder wherever possible. Mm-hmm. It's funny that this is. You know, like the, the Globes, when I was looking at the TV rankings, I can't, not TV rankings, the TV nominations, Andy, and I can't remember if we even chatted about this when they happened or if we were yeah. like, we're just not really paying attention to the Globes. But it's like a really rich, uh, nice, like, uh, list of, of, of shows and performances that are mm-hmm. that are up for being honored. And, you know, you do get that. I think th- there was so much of a glut of stuff that happened right before the Emmys, the, where it was everybody was releasing stuff in the spring to get under the the wire for the Emmys. So this is more reflective of maybe the the larger year of 2022. Sean, as you're going into the Globes, which traditionally is supposed to be more of a television product than it is a indicator of where things are going awards wise, are there any questions that you want to see answered tomorrow night? Does anyone still give a damn about? televised award shows i mean especially with respect to movies because i think it's a little different from the from the film side rather than the tv side because on the film side it's not necessarily a predictor of what's going to happen in the academy awards but at a minimum it puts on primetime national television films that a lot of viewers may not have even heard of yeah you know a movie like tar which i know you guys both love didn't do great business at the box office and has been on vod for a few weeks but you know, that that might vault the film into a greater consciousness among the Academy voters. So there is some benefit there. I mean, the other thing, too, obviously, is, as you guys know, like this is airing on a Tuesday night instead of a Sunday night, which is a pretty significant shift from the history. And, the you know, HFPA has been through all of these changes over the last uh, few years and ensconced in controversy. And um, I am curious to see if, like, this is basically the end of this show as we know it, because mm. there's the speculation that NBC won't be carrying the show next year and then does it go to a streamer does it go somewhere else it's kind of unclear um i don't i don't i don't know how you guys view it though as as purveyors of of tv well, like it's not on the emmy schedule in the same way well I, I would even 
sorry to deflect, but Sean, I'd put it back to you also because the Golden Globes is such a weird media creation because as we all know, and people probably even casual listeners of this podcast or casual observers of entertainment know, it's always kind of been nonsense and was elevated into prominence due to its scheduling in the middle of the award season and the slow drumbeat towards the Oscars, but also because it was, as Chris alluded to, a purely television product. Live award shows used to be like live sports, like a, a reliable getter of ratings for networks. And NBC really leaned into this idea that it was a party and some stars would be there and they would be drinking and Ricky Gervais might say some wink, wink, mean things about them. And then, and here we go. So then the game was called and it was like, oh, this actually has always been kind of fraudulent and is deeply out of step with the times culturally, even as a kind of, I don't know what you even call it, like a, a, a purely a PR exercise uh, enterprise. So then they took a year off basically, and then they came back. And the thing that I don't really understand is what are they now? You would think, and again, with an, with an organization as esteemed and nimble as the HFPA, I can't believe they didn't take this opportunity. There was a chance to be like, okay, what would it mean to be an award show or a TV party or whatever we want to be in 2023 and going forward? It seems they came back with a different mindset, which is like, look who we're nominating and including now. Can we come back? Can we just can we just have our seat at the table still? So maybe it's just a loser's game. Maybe there is no right answer to this, especially as the award season has changed, especially as the release of film entertainment has changed. But Sean, like, did they miss an opportunity here? And what could they have done? I'm asking specifically from the film side, right? Does it even matter? I think that there needs to be a show before the Academy Awards. I think that there needs to be something that primes the pump. And so mm-hmm. some there's been speculation that maybe the Critics' Choice Awards could elevate in the face of all of this Globes controversy. I don't, I, I'm not sure if that's feasible. I guess what happens Tuesday night will help dictate some of that. To me, it's more just a question of can this be a good, fun show? I mean, this was right. a, it was a frivolous venture and it was a way to kill time on a Sunday on that, you know, on a kind of idle NFL weekend. And now that Sunday in this part of the NFL schedule is occupied by NFL games. And so well, because it's an 18 n- n- not by the number season. 1 seed Eagles. Sean, they, they, we have next weekend off. It's not what he wants. This record. is not what but Sean please. signed up for. I'm so happy to be here. Um Go on. <laughs> I I don't know what I don't know what they could have done and I don't know what they can do. I mean the truth is is that this stuff just means a lot less to people than it used to. Paradoxically, this is a year in which Avatar the Way of Water and Top Gun Maverick are nominated for huge awards. Those are two of not just the biggest movies of 2022, but two of the biggest movies ever released in the history of movies. Avatar The Way of Water just unseated Jurassic Park as the seventh highest grossing movie of all time. It's been out for three weeks. So, you know, there is opportunity here to kind of spotlight something that people know about as well, which is I've long held as part of the gambit of award Mm -hmm. shows is you do have to show people things that they have an emotional relationship to in order to get them excited about these pageants that we put on every year. So I think that there's a chance to kind of spotlight underseen films and underseen narratives and also celebrate famous people and also make fun of them simultaneously. Gerard Carmichael hosting, I think that's actually quite fun. And I know you guys are fans of his. I'm a huge fan of his as well. As far as like what the globes are and what they can be long-term, if I'm being honest, I don't really give a shit. Like I, I, it's just not really like a show that has any emotional or, or cultural valence to me. So um, I'm not thinking about it in those terms. I am thinking about it selfishly from a big picture perspective like, what does this just mean for what I'm going to be doing with the show for the next six to eight weeks? You know, it's. Can, can I, uh, I'm just, I'm just flummoxed though, Sean. You're saying this. I'm sorry, Chris. That why we can't give the same attention to um, Lydia Tar, The Way of Bernstein, which, 
absolutely is how they should re-release this film into theaters. <laughs> it's not too late. Yeah. Um, there's this interesting sort of sub-narrative that's going through both the TV and the movie stuff this year, Sean, where it's like, I think it, the... May, and maybe this is just podcaster brain where we talk about this stuff for such a long time and then we start to get a little bit of... Um, we start to lose our confidence about like, are the things that we're caring about, the things that we're talking about all the time, the things that people are actually watching. And there is that... It, I think that the nominees in both film and TV kind of reflect that tension where you've got some of the specialty releases, the the auteur movies, the movies that would traditionally, like your Babylons, that would be like, this is awards catnip. Movie stars making a movie about the power of movies. Fablemans is the same kind of situation. And in TV, you can see that there are some critical darlings like The Bear or what have you. And then very heavily represented are shows like House of the Dragon, Ozark, big kind of splashy, more genre, but like, you know, the kind of things that like you get the impression people were actually watching over the course of the year. Let's say like Austin Butler walks away with best actor, you know, and let's say something like Top Gun walks away with, um, so it was Top Gun in best picture drama. Drama. Yeah. Right. Let's say Top Gun wins best picture and let's say Austin Butler wins best actor instead of say Colin Farrell or something like that. Would you take that at all as a signal? I know that the voting block of the HFPA is in no way like a like a democracy uh, or even a voting block that you can sort of demographically study. But I, I, I'm wondering if you have that same awareness, like you said, like people want to watch award shows about movies that they have emotional connections to, not movies that they don't even know if like what streaming service they're supposed to subscribe to to see. Whether or not like these kinds of early harbinger, like could be harbingers of an Academy Awards that's like, you know what, this year... We need people to watch, so we're we're basically pushing this more towards Tom Cruise, Austin Butler, and shit people care about. Well, one thing that hasn't changed about the show that has always made it a kind of intriguing precursor is that in the example that you cited, Chris, in fact, Austin Butler and Colin Farrell can both win because oh, right. Austin Butler is competing in Best Actor for Drama and Colin Farrell is competing in Best Actor for Musical or Comedy in that a delightful romp, The Banshees of Inisherin, perhaps the most depressing film of the year, which I loved, but like... You know, there's a farcical element to the way that they nominate in the show. I, I, the HFPA, despite some of the changes that they've made in the last couple of years, is still a very small group. And it's always been unclear to me how much kind of collusion and conversation behind the scenes in which they're sort of like throwing themselves behind a particular film or actor or actress or, you know, what kind of statement they're trying to make. It has always felt a little more haphazard than that to me personally. It always just kind of felt like, a hundred people throw a name in a hat and then they figure out what's going to happen next. I guess I would ask you guys, like, is it exciting if Diego Luna wins for Andor to you? Like, is that, is it like, fuck yeah, that's so fun that our guy burst through in this, you know, that I think that's Andor's only nomination or is it, do you not care? Like, is it like, well, Kevin Costner will win and that's all that matters. I think that um, a large to the degree that I care about award show, it is almost entirely from a all press is good press for things that need the press. And now, obviously, if you listen to this podcast, you'd think there nothing else happened in fiscal two <laughs> except for Andor. But that is not the case, I think, in the culture at large, uh, certainly in the perception of whether that show was, quote unquote, successful or not. So I'm cheering for our guys and gals and like the things that I think I can I quantify if Diego Luna winning or the bear winning or whatever means something in the larger culture. I know, but it doesn't hurt. 
So I do still feel that kind of proprietary support for, I mean, again, all these people are rich and successful and on TV shows, so it's hard to say underdogs. But yeah, I think it does matter in a different way. Also, because there are ongoing concerns, whereas I do hope one day we do we will see Tar 2. Uh, I, I don't think that's exactly how Todd Field's going to spend his next 17 years. Well, Todd Field needs to be getting back in those friends and tapes, you know? Todd Field's just going to be sharpening his hat collection. Do you see him on the cover of THR? Jesus. Um, wait, I had a question, though, for you, Sean. Um, it's interesting you said that in some ways the an aspect of the film community might be getting what they want this year or what they've claimed to want in that two, the two biggest films of the year, box office-wise, mass culture-wise, are likely to be nominated for Oscars. They're on a glide path towards that, you know, or at least to be recognized in some, in some way. Um, that feels significant, and it also feels different than in past years, where it did seem like, and again, you've clearly been covering this a hundred times more closely than I have for the past seasons, but it did feel like there was a sort of populist art house pick, if you will, and then a more, you know, whether it's La La Land versus Moonlight or whether it's um, Shape Green, of Water versus Green Book whatever. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and none of those were the giant box office successes. Then there was a separate argument, which was Endgame should have been nominated too. This year, my perception of it is the favorites are the favorites, right? In terms of what everyone is talking about. And then on the margins, you know, I love Tar, but I don't have any illusions about its cultural footprint. And I don't know if the Fablemans or Babylon have any real momentum other than among the people who think the I Oscars thought should always Tar be seems to be that racking up like a lot of... Well, no, I think it'll be nominated, but I guess I mean, I don't... No, I mean awards. Like it's, it's doing quite well. Like didn't Tar just win like another film critic circle, Sean? Yeah, um, Marty Scorsese. It, it won the New York so. Film Critic Circle yeah. best, best film. Um, I, I think kind of everything that you just said is true. Like there is a, an understanding now. Kaya, that, turn the camera on for that retro- retroactively. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to cut that out and, and yep. market the show with that comment. I think that it's likely that Avatar 2 and Top Gun Maverick will be nominated and are probably in that kind of like top five, top six of the Best Picture nominees. I think it's also very unlikely that either of those films are going to win. Hmm. And so they're going to be able to market the show off the strength of those films, which is something that, you know, in the strange days of, you know, phase two of the pandemic, you could find me on podcasts crying into my microphone about why (laughs) Spider-Man No Way Home was not nominated for Best Picture. Like, I'm so glad we're past that time. You know, I I had a lot of fun at Spider-Man No Way Home. I think you guys did too. That To me, that was more of a, like, a shameless cry for the Academy Awards to still have any kind of emotional resonance with the audience, which it really clearly has not in the last three years. This is a different story. Top Gun Maverick and Avatar The Way of Water, I think regardless of how you feel about them, it's hard to look at them and say, there were a lot of movies that were better than them this year because there weren't. Those were were both really, really engaging, really, really well-made action entertainments. And so the idea that the Academy is getting on board with that is exciting. The idea that they're being spotlit. There's a secondary tier though. Like to me, ultimately this comes down to kind of everything everywhere all at once, Banshees of Inisherin and The Fablemans. Those are the three films that I think are kind of like most aggressively competing for Best Picture. Hmm. But at the Globes, there's- To, to, to win say, or to be nominated? Sorry to, to win. You off. I think all three of those films wow. will be nominated. I think that's probably the trio that is fighting right now. Maybe with Tar and Top Gun kind of on the on the outskirts. But I think what Chris was saying earlier about the kind of mainstreamification of the TV nominations, you find that at the Globes too. Like at the Globes, you'll see a couple of interesting nominees. Glass Onion has been nominated for a bunch of awards in part because they split those acting awards. That's a movie that just a lot of people have seen. 
You know, like I think we can imagine mm-hmm. that maybe like it's the third or fourth most watched movie on the long list of best picture contenders right. just by dint <clears throat> of it being a hit on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And then even like a movie like The Menu having two acting nominees, that kind of feels to me like, you know, Kevin Costner getting nominated for Yellowstone or something because no, The Menu like, is one of those movies that This is something that people well. actually watched. Exactly. Yeah, right. And if you look, like if you go to my beloved letterbox right now, you will see the most logged movie for the last 10 days has been The Menu because it's been available on HBO Max. And that's the other wrinkle is these shows mm. now being more like the shows that these films now being more like the shows that you guys talk about every week where it's like it's it's all just kind of streaming entertainment like nobody knew when the menu came out it did solid business but now it's just as available to you as Andor or the Bear and right. it kind of fits in the same bucket yeah my mother called me uh during the third quarter of uh of Titans Jags and was like I was like oh my god something terrible has happened on the east coast and she's like I just watched The Banshees of Inner Sharon. What a tremendous movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, Mom, Trevor Lawrence is dealing. <laughs> but that, that's such a good point and one that I feel like isn't, I, I, I was going to say isn't made enough. I'm sure you make it constantly. I just feel like it, it hasn't really sunk into my brain, which is that the history, or at least the recent history of the Oscar campaign has been to spend money now to push smaller movies forward to get the notice, to get the acclaim, so that then people might spend money to see them. We have now reached a place where the majority of these movies, if not, I believe, all of them, are readily available, right? There's, there's, we're not really doing the small release into, I mean, I guess Fablements, but that was not a small release. No, but I mean, that, like, not streaming yet. Babylon would it? be a perfect example of a movie that comes out late in the year were, right. were it to have been more warmly received and maybe if it was a little bit more digestible I guess but I loved it but Sean loved it but that's a movie that I could see on the awards circuit Mm. slingshotting into and Babylon is passing the 60 million box office mark you know and that's obviously not going to happen there's only one movie this year that is using the old school playbook and it's using it very very well and that's The Whale which is a movie that I was not a fan of but that has had a very strong festival appearance where even if it was not critically beloved, there was a huge moment for Brendan Fraser's return to the screen as a star. And that movie, very slowly but surely, over its month since its release, has been performing well at the box office and expanding a little bit more and expanding a little bit more. And Brendan Fraser's definitely going to be nominated for Best Actor. He's probably not likely to win at the HFPA, in fact, because he has this sordid history in which yeah. you know an accusation was made of... Um, you know, sexual misconduct and he has the, you know, he won't be appearing at the show, but in a way that kind of keeps the story going in this perverse way. And, but that's the only movie, Andy, that unlike say, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what's a really good example of a film in the last 10 years that, you know, played through the Oscar season and yeah. then actually made more money in the aftermath. Cause it's obviously something that's happened many times. I wonder if Moonlight was that. I don't know for a fact, but it's that was a summer Moonlight release. Like a summer, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a yeah. summer release. So right. it, wasn't, that's not, and Parasite was summer. Like I'm thinking of like the, the we've mm-hmm. kind of broken the wheel a little bit when it comes to the, how these things get uh, released. Uh, one other topic that kind of tangentially goes into some other stuff that I wanted to talk about with Andy, but also with you t- today, Sean, because it's I think there's a trickle down effect as everything becomes all the same, you know, media tech corporation releasing stuff in in a streaming fashion. Is over the last few years, especially since Trump got elected, but you know, even as these award shows sort of resurrected themselves or or kept going on through the pandemic. Award shows sometimes to a cringy level are reflections of whatever the national moment is. And you have people like kind of, you know, the the Soderbergh Oscars were obviously this attempt to have an award show in a very limited fashion. But 
over the course of the last few years, you've got a lot of like these sort of like, hey, here's a mirror to what's going on and here's how Hollywood feels mm-hmm. about it. It's often a very um, contentious moment where you get a lot of like sort of more conservative people being like, shut the fuck up and just make movies and stop <laughs> telling me how to feel. <laughs> this year, I have to admit, I'm actually the one of the reasons why I'm most curious to tune into the Globes is to see whether or not it's touched on at all about Bolsonaro. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, to see whether or not it's touched on at all about the state of the industry. And, you know, so like Andy and I were talking about what we might chat about as like news this this episode and AMC, uh, the network, is essentially doing like fire sale, cost cutting, uh, canceling several shows that were in production or had already received like multiple season reorders. So like 61st Street, Pantheon, Damascus, Invitation to a Bonfire shows that have either started airing like 61st Street or haven't started airing yet, mm-hmm. getting canceled. Uh, we obviously have talked about like some of the Netflix cancellations. There was even like a weird story a week or two ago about whether or not Net- Wednesday was going to be back on Netflix or right. whether like because of its corporate ownership, it might get put over on Amazon and like just a lot of stuff like that. I don't necessarily expect Gerard Carmichael to get up and start doing David Zaslav jokes, but I would be really curious and to hear either of you say like, do you think anybody's going to be up and be like, there's a strike coming and it's raining and this industry is in a lot of trouble? Well, first of all, I'd like to answer that question in my native Portuguese. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I... I, I um, and, Andy's in Orlando right now, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I love it here. Um, I think Zaslav isn't one man. He is a movement. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you, you were correct to mention that. Like, we we have been collectively and corporately talking about David Zaslav, the, 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 new head, the head of the newly, essentially newly formed Warner Brothers Discovery Network, as being uh, a savage and cutting down shows and, you know, turning fully finished movies into tax write-offs. That's an industry trend. That's not just one guy. And that's what is happening at AMC. And so if there, you, if there are AMC projects or like the Anne Rice shows or Walking Dead stuff that you are a fan of, that's not going anywhere. Like it is not, they're not shutting down operations, but they are cost cutting tremendously. And that's the reality of where we are fiscally and culturally at this moment when these, we've been saying this for years, they can't compete. Yeah, AMC cannot compete with Apple. You know, I don't know who can. And so this is going to be um, the norm, unfortunately, I think, for a lot of the less rich services going forward. I don't, th- to answer your question directly, I don't think there's going to be a lot of talk about this because the public, I mean, Gerard Carmichael might joke about it. That would be cool. But I think broadly, these shows are to put a happy face on the industry, right? Yeah. Like they, they exist to be like, we're the smile factory and business is booming. Um, you may have heard about some shipping delays, <laughs> some supply chain issues when it came to smiles, but we fixed that and they're, they're on the way. So I, 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 I generally think the answer, the quick answer is, is no, but there's going to be unease in the ballroom. You know, this is, this is a very, very strange moment that everyone that I talk to is giving the same answer to, which is, God, it's going to be, it's going to be gnarly, but it'll be fine. And I can't tell if the it'll be fine is because these are like sage old hands who have been through this sort of thing before, or um, you know if it's if it's just like uh, uh, Adam Driver and White Noise. Like, <laughs> well, you know, no, 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 it's a plume. The plume. They're goes monitoring out. the smoke. Smoke. <laughs> yeah. It never blows into town. It always blows to Canada. Well, you, uh, you, 
it raises two really interesting strands of discussion that I feel like has been a theme of your show for the last year and is increasingly on my mind. On the one Electoral hand, security in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> and? Um, I mean, that's related to this too, candidly, right. Andy, which is that what, a lot of the things that you're describing are things that online entertainment industry watchers are aware of, but that most yeah. people in the culture don't know. They only know about it if their own if their favorite show in the universe is affected and it's been canceled, or you know they've been desperately awaiting the Batgirl release and for some reason they've discovered that it's no longer happening and then they end up reading about the right. strategy of a debt riddled you know entertainment conglomerate. For the most part, I think that that stuff it almost never appears on award shows, and it's not just that you know the Globes is famously acidic. You alluded to Ricky Gervais kind of annihilating the people Tina in the room and Amy in the past. too making jokes. Yeah, Tina and Amy doing the same thing. Um, I'm sure Carmichael will do something similar, but it will be that that is a star party in that room. It's not a business show. The Oscars is actually closer to a business show, but it's notable that very rarely do you have people who work in the business hosting the show. You know, Jimmy Kimmel is hosting the Academy Awards. He's a late night talk show host. Um, I, the other thing that it collides with that is so fascinating to me is for film, we have this moment now where it's quite clear that the streaming movie gambit failed. That this, this mm-hmm. strategy to try to move the audience to build subscriber base with movies in particular did not work. The colorification. Yes. Jason Kylar's decision making, also just like the the short the shorter windows for NBC Universal, well, I continue to think is a, a bizarre decision because actually the, the more films that go into theaters, the more we're seeing that the viewing audience is is basically still there. It's just that there's less product. Like this weekend, fucking Megan, yeah, made thirty million dollars. Now Blumhouse is incredible at marketing; they're so good at this, and they consistently do this in months like January when it seems like nobody's going to show up. But if they're able to ramp up film production and put more more theatrical releases out in the yes. world, that's notable. And secondarily, when you look at the Best Picture race this year, it's unlikely that a streamer is going to have a film nominated. And that's amazing. I mean, as recently as nine months ago, when CODA won, you would have thought, well, this is it now. Now it's going to be all streamers. It's going to be all Netflix, Amazon, Apple movies that are going to be nominated. And they may not have won this year. So that's, that's also the, interesting. That's a really good point. I would say, just as a counter, Jason Kalar, who's who we're referring to, who was, the, who was in charge of Warner Brothers before it became Warner Brothers Discovery, at least on the business end of it, he made the very you know controversial decision to just dump the entire Warner Brothers slate onto HBO Max, pissing off filmmakers um, and sending a ripple effect to the industry. Couldn't you make the case that he was right short term? That that I think there was a lot of talk that that helped HBO Max's subscriber base, or at least HBO Max's Q rating, in the shortest of possible short terms, which is really all he was operating in, because A, we were globally in a pandemic and nobody knew what was going to happen, and B, he probably knew as well as anyone else that there was probably a sale coming and he wouldn't necessarily be in the job. So it's interesting that the short term may have worked, but obviously in terms of the industry uh, writ large, it might not make any sense. And I guess the the question that comes out of that for me is, are we just overthinking everything? Because you said the most important thing, which is people want to go see the movie. People want to go to the movies, right? Like that just, I mean, but even they me. They, but, <laughs> but they didn't go see Fablemans and they didn't go see Tar and they, you but know, they you never know, saw those. They movies. never would have seen Tar and Fablemans. I mean, don't get me started. Let's, let's have that conversation at a different time. But like, I love both of those movies, but the, the, both of those movies, even in 1996, there's no guarantee that yeah. they were going to make $100 million. They might have made $35 million instead right. of nine. Right. You know? and, and so there is, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of degree, but 
there is still the the element of the, I I go back to the menu because the menu is such an interesting example to me. It's like that's just a an enjoyable thriller for most of the people that are going to check it out. And that's something that has been missing from movies for a long time. And they put one out and it was well-marketed and it did pretty good business. I bet you if they put that movie out again this year, it would do twice the business it did in 2022 because the user habit is coming back. So I, I think it's, the awards has a chance to kind of celebrate that this year in particular on the, on the backs of Avatar and, and, and um, Top Gun. But I, I, does that really matter? I mean, your point about Jason Kilar is so interesting. Like, I don't really care what Jason Kilar's goals were. I think yeah. it's so interesting that Warner Brothers blew the chance to have Christopher Nolan's films for the just rest of say, their life. I was just going to yes. talk about Tenet, too. I was just going to say, like, if you see Maverick and you see what happened with Maverick, and Tenet is not Maverick, and I don't know that it would have had, like... I think that there was something to Tenet, and I don't know what like how popular it winds up being, but like being able to re-watch Tenet immediately and be like, wait a second, what? And go back and do it again. Now, would I have done that in the theater? Probably. But if they had held Tenet for 12 months or like something similar to what Paramount did with Maverick, where they were just like, we're just not going to, Tom Cruise is not going to let us put this on streaming. I, that's probably at least a hundred million dollar movie and probably like a fucking, I mean, it would probably be in my top 10 at least if for, for me personally, if it had come out this year. And I wonder whether or not, yeah, and, and to say nothing of the but fact that it essentially ruined their relationship with Christopher Nolan going forward. What's interesting to me about that and what is very, very relevant to all of the contours of this conversation is the very uncomfortable, if not um, unnecessary conversion of this from an entertainment business into an internet tech business. Right. And which immediately demolishes the idea of there being value to relationships. And we've talked about this in, in other contexts, you know, in terms of which streaming services slash networks seem to be healthy going into 2023. And without, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not Charles Grodin, by the way, in Dave going through the, going through the budget. That was um, a huge mistake that I, that we made. I said, David Pamer, Sean, your co-host and our friend, Amanda Dobbins, the ombuds woman of this podcast corrected me, but we're, which I'm grateful for. We're not Charles Grodin, like seeing what's actually going on, but it does seem like the companies that still value those relationships with their creative people and let them make mistakes and let them flourish, HBO and FX specifically, seem, I mean, again, we don't know the numbers, seem to be doing the best at this, right? And that there is value to that. And it may have been an incredible galaxy brain uh, stroke of genius to just take the whole slate and put it online. But the the, the long-term damage, yeah, is likely irreparable. Now, is it is make it's not making Oppenheimer irreparable? You could probably come back from that. But that was the only the most um that was only the noisiest one, right? We don't actually know what else happened behind the scenes. The most interesting movie of 2023 to me in this context is Dune Part Two. Mm-hmm. Yes. A movie that everyone saw at home and is now gonna have to go to a theater to go see to complete the story. Right. Which is yeah, but that's just, that's why they added Tim Blake Nelson to the cast. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll be there for Flo Pew. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm going there for walking. You kidding me? Um, Great but that. But Sean, like, do you last thing? Like, Sean, do you consider from from the big picture picture was Dune Part One? Is that a success? Do we consider? Oh, I mean, yeah. I loved it. I, yeah. I think it's a success. But like, do you think it was a success as an entertainment product put into the world at a challenging time? Um, unquestionably. I, it was something that people desperately wanted. They wanted an event film at a time when it felt like they didn't have enough event yeah. films because of what was happening in the world. And even though that most people saw it, I, I saw it at the 
Ross Theater on the Warner Brothers lot, which is like one of the sickest movie going experiences I've ever had. I was there. It was like me and one other guy. And <laughs> sick, it, it, sickest because that was the Omicron wave beginning. <laughs> yes. I was physically ill. Um, yeah. No, it was just, it, it, it was amazing on the big screen, but I think people desperately wanted it at home and watched it over and over and over again. We, Chris and I have talked about this many times about how that's one of the most rewarding things about streaming movies after we've shit on streaming movies for the last 20 minutes, is you could just go back and watch it again. I yeah. watched Ballad of Buster Scruggs three times in a week because I was like, oh, wow, this is just here for me now. I have like, a I have a feeling that Dune 2 is going to be a huge movie. And the, for one yeah. specific reason, Dune is on every single day on HBO. Every mm-hmm. time I turn cable on and I like flip up to see like what's on the movie channels, Dune is playing three times a day on HBO every day. And it may not seem like it matters, but I've seen Dune like six times because of that, pretty much. Like, like between like watching it in chopped up rewatchables fashion, the way it, rewatchables was sort of started was like the movies that you kind of always stick around for when you channel surf to them. I have I just stick around like I'm like oh Momoa is about to go here like the, like it's all I've actually developed a relationship with a movie that I was kind of agnostic about. I was like excited for a Villeneuve movie and whatever, but it wasn't like I was like, I need the sandworms back in my life. That movie and now ruled. It's I'm like, so good. yo, man, we got to figure out this spice production situation. Greenwald, do you channel surf? No. Oh my God. Andy, when's the last time you held your remote? That, when's I the last time your daughters let you have your remote? Well, that's the, that's the more valid question. But no, I don't use cable at all. At all. I'm purely Apple TV interface. I never stumble on things anymore and I kind of miss it. Yeah, I'm the same except for sports. Sports I like is the it. only time I find myself watching TV. I, you, I know, Chris, you still surf. Well, I just really, basically, like, I'll turn the TV on, especially for sports. But then, like, before and after sports, I kind of just will be like, I'm going to put on whatever the best movie is on one of the 25 channels that I, Time Warner or Spectrum forces me to have. And I'm rarely disappointed. There's usually something on where I'm like, oh, cool. Like, I haven't seen this in a while. Or I never watched Moonfall. Let's see, let's see what Allie Ferry's wow. got going. But, but Sean, um, before we move to my adopted home city of Copenhagen, I, I do want to ask you this because not only as an industry watcher and our friend, but also as someone who I think of as a voice of reason uh, in oh, times well, of turmoil. That's true. Um, a steadying voice. I have found our conversations on this podcast increasingly getting kind of lost in the uncanny valley between a viewer problem and an industry problem. And, and, and you alluded to this before, like how much does this even matter? And I guess I'm curious broadly or specifically, you answer it as you'd like, like what is the right balance of that? Because I do think that coming into January, we're in January 2023 and inside of the TV industry, People are losing their fucking minds mm-hmm. and saying this is the worst time in the history of television to try and sell something. Things are not being bought. You know, promising projects are floundering and everyone's freaking out about the strike and nobody knows anything. Like which which of these channels are going to exist. Green lights no longer mean green. You can get canceled after producing a whole season as we just saw with Minx. Um, so that is stressy if you're working in TV and it also affects our coverage to a degree because you know, maybe we just all want to be like, you know, Paul Revere warning everybody about what's coming. Uh, and I don't mean the British in terms of copros because those are still proceeding apace. Apparently quite cheap and affordable. So AMC will continue to make those. Anyway, Sean, what do you think is the right balance of coverage at this moment? That's a that's a question for the my other job, you know? Like that's a that's a head of content question and not like a yeah. podcaster question. I I don't I couldn't say for sure scientifically. I'll say what I try to do for the most part is what you guys do, which is I try to put as much energy behind the things that I actually care about. 
And oftentimes it is oddly predictable. Mm. I had a pretty good feeling when I heard about Tar a couple of years ago that Todd Field was going to make a really good film. It's actually exceeded my expectations, but I was ready to kind of put some emotional energy into that because I liked his first two films so much. And it turned out that that was worth it. And, and Amanda and I devoted an entire episode to that film after it had made less than $5 million at the box office. Because we were like, you know what? This is that rare Venn diagram moment for the two of us where we both are so intellectually and emotionally connected to a movie that we want to celebrate it. And you know what? If it doesn't do gangbuster numbers at first, it probably will down the road when it gets discovered because we believe in our own taste and our own passion. I think you guys have consistently had deeper conversations in part, Andy, because of your personal experience professionally that alters how you spend your time. I think people who listen to the show want to know what's going on in the industry. What they don't want is only industry. Like mm-hmm. they don't, because they, they trust you guys. They want you guys to say, what do you, what do I like? And why do I like it? And they also occasionally want you to dump on something that needs to be dumped on. And that's, that to me is where I always struggle. It's like, when is it time to be mm-hmm. like, put a bullet in this thing's head because it's bad for our culture. So it's, uh, it's something that Andy really struggles with as well. <laughs> totally. Oh my yeah. God. And also speaking of, you know, I, <laughs> the fastest gun in the guy, West. <laughs> we're about to talk about Copenhagen Cowboy. But I guess I would just say that from a, someone who doesn't really cover movies, but pretends to every few times, a couple times a year, it is hard for me to articulate any kind of worry about the theatrical model when Tar and Top Gun came out in the same year. Mm-hmm. Like that, to, if you just took those two movies, which are going to be nominated for Best Picture almost almost definitely, it, it's hard to argue health, right? Because those two movies are fucking incredible and in totally different ways. Totally yes. different ways. Yes. Um, and what they have in common is Stanley Kubrick. Because he brought <laughs> Todd Field yes. and Tom Cruise together yeah. in a magnificent way. The Fidelio universe. Uh, um, wait, you just... I, can we do another podcast on that? <laughs> just... Why don't we uh, Why don't we get into uh, Copenhagen Cowboy? We're just going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, we're back. We're in Copenhagen. We're talking about... Do you want me to show you guys around? So... 
Nicholas Winding Refn makes a six episode mm-hmm. Scandi Noir in terms of its designation on uh on Netflix. It was it was supposed to be part of the, the burgeoning Scandi Noir movement that Netflix has very done very well with, where you've got all these Danish and Norwegian and Swedish shows that are uh, murder mysteries that are coming out of that region and that Netflix pumps out. Um, this is, I'm going to go through net, you know, just sort of like some basics here. So in the last 11 years, I guess, so this has been Refn's decade. Drive, Only God Forgives, Neon Demon, the 13 hour Too Old to Die Young that was on Amazon Prime, which was released and then promptly swept under a, a throw rug in Andy Jassy's house. And really you could only find it if you seriously like search for it on Amazon Prime. And then Several years later, coming out of the pandemic, he does Copenhagen Cowboy for Netflix, which, with all due respect to the Netflix Corporation, was similarly similarly dismissed. I it is not in the top ten of TV uh, charts. I don't know if it is where it is globally, but in the U.S., it is not, or it wasn't as of Sunday night. And I I don't even know that I saw it on the front page. Um, I, I know once you start watching something, like your algorithm changes, like how it's displayed to you. But I don't think I saw it on like the front page of like new releases. I- Anecdotally, I've now watched half of the season uh, over not just one viewing, and it still is just telling me that The Sting is now available on Netflix. <laughs> now, The Sting, I cannot wait to watch The Sting again. Thank you, Netflix Corporation. A masterpiece, one of the best films of all time. But it is not trying to get me to finish this series. I still get emails trying to get me to finish 1899, but so far, crickets. Okay, so we can basically, I want to get like a temp check from you two. Andy's watched half the series, Sean and I finished it just to see sort of how you're feeling about it. And then I have some ref and stuff I want to talk about, and then we can get into the show in a more detailed way. Oh, wait, I should also say before we get fully into it, that um, speaking of my children with the remotes, they did get access to the Netflix and they changed every, everyone in the family's name and avatar on the um, subscription, uh-huh. uh, which is great. They gave me like a, a mean dragon face, but they also changed my name. So it, it doesn't have my name anymore. So what happens now is I get emails from Netflix that say, Daddy, you have three episodes of Copenhagen <laughs> Cowboy to watch. <laughs> That's what it said to me too when I logged in. Exactly. Was, and you didn't change anything. It just knew. And I feel like the, finally it's appropriate. They just addressed me as Mr. Chang. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I appreciate that, that sort of specialization. What'd you think, Greenwald? I'm so interested. Well, like, this is not your guy. Well, I loved it. I mean, I, you guys treat me like you would like bubble wrap. You guys were so afraid. <laughs> Here, you know what it is, is that like you, yeah. you have now turned your TV watching habits into oh a state secret. So when I'm texting you over the course <laughs> of the weekend podcast. and I'm like, about? yo, I, I'm like, I'm deep in, in this Danish underworld. You'll be like, here's, here's a funny link. I got served on Facebook, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, it was like, funny. You just and then, did the movie phone voice again, CR. You I know. Just, and you then can't get last away from night, me. I was like, you know, how many Copenhagens are you down? And you were like, firing it up. Well, so it's because you got... I, I, okay. First of all, let's make this a referendum on daddy and his, his viewing habits, <laughs> clearly. Um, I, I'm, it's, it's, just, it's just that I'm embarrassed, Chris, because you watch the shit out of things yeah. and you do it in a timely and responsible fashion. And Sean just said he watched Buster Scruggs three times in a week. So we're not, we don't even need. <laughs> I was not a daddy at that time in my life. So that <laughs> right, might be okay. the reason for that. So what I, when I tell you I'm going to watch something, Chris, by God, I will do it. 
I'm so impressed. I'm so glad but you liked will it. I, will I begin before 9.36 p.m. on the Sunday before? No. No. And so I'm a little embarrassed. So the silence is not judgment. The silence is shame, which puts me firmly into the NWR universe, I think, yeah. in a very, very strong way. Yeah, so, everything is about debt and what you owe. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think that this is fascinating. And again, in the same spirit with which we just said, like, how bad can the industry be if it makes Tar and Top Gun? Like, we can wring our hands about nothing is getting made anymore. But like, Irma Vep got made last year. The English got made somehow. This got made. These things exist. These are super bizarre, super idiosyncratic filmmaking at a very high level. And that in and of itself is really exciting to see. I would defer to you guys, not just because you finished the series, but because you are NWR completists. I mean, it is a vibe. It is a mood. It is a world. I don't know if this is significantly a departure for him in recent years. I actually, I know you guys are always checking for this with me. Aesthetically, I have never taken issue with him. Because if you told me like, oh, there's a guy from my hometown of Copenhagen who just basically um, cut lines of Michael Mann and David Lynch in equal measure and then snorted them. Yeah. And then just this is what came out of his brain. Like, yeah, I'm in. I, I would like to live in a world that just has neon bars artfully placed in the background of every room I walk into. It's fucking awesome. I found this so far through three episodes compelling on a, yes, I'm going to say it, more compelling morally than I think <laughs> I, I, I have felt about his past work. Uh, I don't know what that says about me, where I am, where daddy is at this particular moment with the Netflix corporation. I don't know what this is just where I am so far in this series, but I found this to be super compelling, super disturbing, weird, but kind of human in a way that I didn't necessarily expect. And I found that very, very compelling. It it wasn't just aesthetically beautiful and spiritually empty, which is something that I, I think maybe you guys thought I would say coming into this. No, I, I didn't. I, I do think I, you hit the lottery and that this, you're the only human being who's ever described this show as human. Sean, what did you think? Well, I don't think they behave like humans, but there is something that is like, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a trench of sorrow inside of this show that I found really compelling, even through its idiosyncrasies, even through its slowness, even through its complete lack of recognizable human behavior, which I, I should probably should have said at the top. Well, I have a split mind on this. One, I'll just say, I, I categorize it amongst this class of pandemic projects from our great filmmakers. The Fablemans, Bardo, Armageddon Time, these sort of like inward-looking, mm. deeply self-referential, and perversely autobiographical stories that, in some respects, are fascinating to view, and in other respects, are these like terribly narcissistic and sometimes kind of failing creative projects. And what happens to people when they spend a lot of time isolated and away from the communities that help them feel most creative? I, as Chris knows, like, adore Nicholas Winning Refn's work. I think the Drive, Only God Forgives duo, duet, is like that speaks to me on a primal level. I love those movies. I loved my theater-going experiences with those movies. I think he's a, like a true artist. I also think he's really circling the drain right now of his own interests. And as interest, as as kind of beautifully composed as this is, and as what a fascinating rejoinder it is to 10 years of superhero movies, um, I did feel at the end, and I was like, 
okay, it's time. It's you have to. He has to start anew. Like mm-hmm. I, the one thing I did after mm-hmm. I finished watching it was I watched Pusher again for the first time, or for the first time in many years. And Pusher, which is one of his first, I think it's his first official film, um, yeah. is this kind of like handheld on the streets of Denmark drug dealer uh, film that had two subsequent subsequent sequels. And two is quite good. Two is very good. Uh, three is okay, but they they star Mads Mikkelsen and they are really gritty and they feel like, not unlike some of those William Friedkin 70s crime movies. And he's he has lost something that he is in a world of pure artificiality at this point. And I think it yes. served him really well to a point. And at a, he, there were times on this show where I felt like he was quote tweeting himself and he, it, it kind of lost my interest in a weird way. Um, yeah. So part of that is because like the glacial pace is now self parodic. Like he, he is taking mm-hmm. so long to get to his point in the story, even though this series is half the, the runtime or third of the runtime of Too Old to Die this Young. This series actually, like, frankly, feels like the West Wing compared to only to Too Old to Die Young. So mm-hmm. in, in the last like four or five years, he has done 20 hours more or less of long form storytelling that exists kind of on this blurred line between cinema and television. You know, I, I would not be surprised if he does not watch a single television show in his personal life. Uh, there is nothing about these two works that are cut for TV. I would say that one of the interesting little tidbits about Copenhagen Cowboy is the vignette style of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. So even within the 55 minutes, blissfully 55 minutes compared to the often like hour and 15, hour and 20 minute episodes of Too Old to Die Young, the scenes or like the little sort of chapters are really only about five or six minutes long. And I agree with you, Sean, that for me, this series sort of peaks with episode four. Mm-hmm. And and while I had a lot to like about, there was a lot to like about the sort of last few episodes, I felt like it was essentially just like only God forgives, but with a woman. <laughs> Completely uh, agree. But, but wait, see, this is really interesting to me. So again, I have not seen the potential Back high half, point of the yeah, series. Right. And we also, I, I feel like I neglected to say like, so far, there is neither a gl- there's no there's, there's not a glimpse of Copenhagen or cowboys thus far through three episodes. No, so it the name be is Copenhagen ast- Pig Boy. That, that was the name. <laughs> that was right it there. It should for have the been taking. fucking called Vampires versus Aliens, and more people would have watched it. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. Wow, I didn't know In that. In some ways, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's Cal so, L versus Dracula. That's yeah. what the story is. Well, so. Spoilers, but at least through three <laughs> did you episodes. Think, did you think the main character Mew was just like a gal who would love to help other people out? <laughs> yeah, but here's but, but it's like that, task the answer. Rabbit, like. The answer to this actually is the point that I was going to make. So it is about a mysterious young woman named Mew who we meet, and she's being bandied about as a good luck totem by Albanian pimps, uh-huh. essentially in the. Uh, in the Danish countryside, she frees herself, and then she is gets involved with, a, a, I guess, the Chinese crime syndicate, and there are a lot of pigs throughout. There's a bad guy that seems kind of supernatural, blah, blah, blah. My point is, I was not watching this as the next chapter in the NWR cinematic legacy project, because I, I, loved, I did Love Drive. I did not make it through... What was Only the, God what Forgives. The movie? Only God Forgives, and I did not engage with... Was the Miles Teller one? Is that the was yeah? The, was too old that? to die. I didn't. So, for me, I was enjoying this as a respite from normal TV. Now, normal TV is kind of a strange term to use when we have such a variety of things on the air at any given moment. 
But I was just delighted to be in a different pace, to see a camera moving differently, to see different attention to light and aesthetic detail. And I was very pleased that, you know, there, there's nothing here plot-wise that I'm particularly um, fired up about yet. When you just, you know, casually said, oh, well, it's heading towards X or Y thing. Okay, fine. You know, I, I'm more interested in how, like, Mew accessorizes her tracksuit for winter suddenly with that explanation <laughs> in episode three, which is like a zip-up muff on yeah. top of it. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it, it's, an, it, it's more indicative of where we are culturally that, there, that, that for as much as we complain about how things are getting bad in the kitchen, the sizzler buffet of options is still so rich and stacked that this is here for us to graze on. And it's high-level filmmaking, but more important than that, it is completely specific individual filmmaking, the kind of which I think is, to your point, John, whether it's championing, championing tar or something else, like it is important to, to draw a bright line around and be like, I'm so glad someone threw kroners at this guy. They are not getting that money back, but this is, this is cool. It, it's a compelling project to me. I mean, Chris, you, this, is, this is your dude. What, so here's what did you think? The, here's the thing that was really funny about watching this. So first of all, my wife's out of town. So Friday, I just like, I watched like four of them, you know, and just like kind of let it ride. And it, it's, it's such an amazing show to just let wash over you. Turn your TV up real loud. Let the Cliff Martinez bang. If it's night and just the neon is coming out of your flat screen, it's kind of an awesome experience to just vibe out to this mm -hmm. show. You have to watch it in in, in the darkness. Oh like my god! If you try to watch this on your laptop during the day or something, it's just like you're you're barely even getting it. Um, I I was haunted by this question as I was watching this thing. When Drive comes out in 2011, it's like this is a major filmmaker. Not only yes. is he a major filmmaker, but is going to exist in that sweet spot like the Mans and the Lynches and like a bunch of our favorite filmmakers that can do both art house and blockbuster or popcorn movies and put them together. They can make Thief. They can make Twin Peaks. They can make... Yeah, art movie, house genre. Yeah, yeah, Mulholland Drive and movies that were just like, oh my God, like not only am I completely immersed in the story you're telling, but you are essentially the coolest person I've ever seen behind a camera doing this. And as NWR has kind of disappeared, frankly, up his own ass, I've joined him you know, like I, 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 I am there for the neon. Like I am there for the the experience. But I have this like weird sinking feeling that he is the most talented and accomplished filmmaker. That if he had never been born, cinema history would be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, I, I, yeah, it's like Sean. Like, is like, can you think of another like another director like this who is? got like an, an adoring cult following, but at the same time seems to have no ripple effect outside of his own work? Well, I'm not entirely ready to say that because I do think that Drive made a very big impact Profound. on the generation yes. just beneath us. Yes. And so like we were just, we did a rewatchables last week. We were talking to Craig Horbeck about how we were in the middle of this show and Craig is like, Drive rules, you know? And there will be people, the same way that what Lynch was doing was certainly these manifestations of his dream state, but also just deeply iterative of with The Wizard of Oz being the primary text, you know, and the, that there is so much in his work that is directly commenting or abstractly commenting on The Wizard of Oz. And so the great thing about 
movies and especially filmmakers who are obsessed with other movies is that they're constantly refracting them and putting that, put, using their own imagination to rechannel them onto the big screen. And he's one of those people. Now, I think it feels that way, Chris, because of what you said, which is that it doesn't really feel like he's taken a step forward in a long time. Yeah. He's taken a lot of sideways steps in his work. And that I'm, I'm finally starting to lose a little bit of patience with that. <laughs> Well, here's my question then. Um, I mean, I, and I want to just, I want to lift you up, Sean, because I agree as, you know, just by default, like the person who really can channel the voice of the younger generation on this podcast, uh, <laughs> Drive is significant. But Drive was also culturally impactful, I think, because it just yep. felt like one of those moments when someone was just surfing the zeitgeist and got it. And I mm-hmm. remember one of the first pieces I wrote for Grandland was interviewing the costume designer who, who built the jacket. You know, the soundtrack is still very, very uh, important to pe- to people's lives, but also in terms of what things can sound like or should sound like. That, it's that movie still, it's put still it all the together. thing that I hear in my head when I drive around Los Angeles at night. Yeah, it's incredibly, it's cool. It was an yeah. incredibly cool and good movie. The question that I have, though, and, and, and one of the reasons why I, I'm interested in this piece is because it was written by a collaborator. Right, mm-hmm. uh, clearly a close collaborator. It's not like this just—it's not like this was just a spec script that came across his desk. But we—I'm always interested in the distinction in an auteur-driven industry between people who are auteurs but maybe don't have anything to say. You know, like he—he—he he, he makes the prettiest pictures. His taste and aesthetics are unimpeachable and specific, which is what you need. But hasn't really always seemed to line up with a compelling story to tell. Now, the next piece of that question, which so far isn't a question, but I trust Sean as a pro can find one in here, is that he's operating in an in a global system where every so often, or at least up until now, an Amazon or a Netflix would be like, yeah, do the thing you do. Do the thing you do. Not anymore, he's not, I don't think. I, I, I don't, think that is over, but yeah. I wonder what his career looks like if after Neon Demon, he's he's like, well, now I want to do another thing that might be two hours or it might be nine and it's someone wandering around. And the people, and this is me taking on the role of big business here. And big business is like, nah, that's not a movie. That sounds like a project you would do on your own time. Well, so you know crucially, I, mean? like, I it, think that it, this Has was, that affected his career? It's worth noting that, so the Amazon thing happens, the, the Too Old to Die Young, that was written by Ed Brubaker. And I think that there is a version of that show that while still brutal is like essentially a, um, an LA crime saga. And it's about this like renegade cop who is in his off hours murdering pedophiles. And then Nicholas Winding Refn comes along and whether or not this is part of Ed Rubiker's like original conception of it, um, it's it's turned into like about witches. Like the to the end of that show is about witches. Um there, there's lots of other things going on in there, but it is like a very surreal, magical realist show by the end of it. Copenhagen Cowboy was pitched to Netflix to kind of capture this moment where mm. a lot of crime shows coming out of this region are um, are catching on globally. And as he has talked about, he sort of pitched it to them as a continuation of the pusher world. Now, not maybe specifically the characters from the pusher world or or maybe in the course of development it changed or in the course of the pandemic it changed, but I think it's kind of a fascinating like... I don't know how many times he can get away with it, but it seems like twice he is now, you know, with, with Prime, he was like, I'm going to make an LA crime show with Miles Teller. And they were like, cool, here's, here's some money. 
And it's like William Baldwin masturbating in a movie theater is like what you get. And in this, it's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make a gritty Danish. Sean, was that your screening of Dune? <laughs> is that what made it memorable? Me, me and Billy. Yeah. yeah. And this is going to be like a, a gritty Danish underworld show in the vein of Pusher. And it's not that. Now it's, it's incredible, but it is definitely not that. Well, I'll say the one thing it has in common with Pusher is that the great Zlatko Burich is in this TV series that he shows up in the final couple of episodes and he is he's having quite a year. He was also in Triangle of Sadness, amazing actor. The I think he's got like a he's got two options in, in in from my viewpoint. It's either become a little bit more like his countryman Thomas Vinterberg and balance Danish projects that he gets funded in country with the occasional US gig or UK gig and then eventually maybe he makes his own version of another round and you know is honored by the academy and stays largely like a kind of art house widely celebrated international film figure or he does what I have always thought he should do which is just become David Fincher just become his version of David Fincher yeah, you know yeah, right all of his work with the exception of Drive I think he has a co-writing credit on mm-hmm. and he does not have a co-writing credit on Drive it's adapted from a James Salas novel and it's written by Hosina Mini and that's his best script, and it's his best movie. It's probably the best thing he's ever done. It's the thing that most people have emotionally connected to, and it's because he does what Fincher does. He brings his perspective, his point of view, his writing mind, his his sort of constructive mind to someone else's work, and he can evolve it, and he doesn't need to take the kind of total authorship of it. I want him to do that so badly for a feature film, but what I don't want is, uh, candidly, Chris, for him to get caught up in what he gets caught up in, which is like, this phantasmagoric vision of our own desiccated bodies and this bizarre Oedipal fascination that he has right now where every story is about how he wants to fuck his mom. And kill her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, it's so iterative now that I just think he needs a a compatriot, someone who gets his aesthetic, but who can write from a a different perspective. I I think that's a, a very important observation broadly. I mean, there are very, very, very few filmmakers who can write and direct their own stuff in a compelling and consistent way. It's just, it, I know it's everyone's goal. Everyone wants to be in charge and to tell the pure storytelling, get the pure storytelling clay, you know, and just shape it and show you what exists inside of them. But often it's better when you don't. It's often it's better when it's collaborative, especially when your aesthetic vision is so loud. Yeah, You know, yeah. I, I know that, that that doesn't track as a sentence, but you know what I mean? It is a very it's an incredible lens to push a story through. And it would be exciting if he was more open. Yeah, it would be more exciting. I mean, you don't want to ever tell someone what to do. I mean, this is clearly he's motivated by his own interests and God bless. I mean, if he if he's able to continue sort of Trojan horsing super weird shit into these larger platforms, fine. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, and and we, this is a very, very old and basic observation, but, you know, Fincher and Sorkin, what, they hate each other, right? But like they made... <laughs> They made the best movie either of them might make when they work together. Can, can I just raise one quick thing too, kind of like in the ecosystem of streaming? A couple of years ago, there was another series that premiered in early January that felt like a lark from a different time. Mm-hmm. It was called Pretend It's a City. You remember this? The Martin sure. Scorsese, yeah. Fran Leibovitz um, kind of mini series. And that seemed to be like a kind of a rider, you know, M&M's kind of 
ledger item in the Irishman deal where he got to, you know, make a couple of things like this. Rolling Thunder Review, I think, was another example yeah. of that. Yeah. And they dumped it on January 8th, 2021, instead of at the end of the year, because they just felt like this is kind of for the the hardcore heads and it's not a part of like our official mm-hmm. 2020 release plan. It's like it's something that we're tossing off and we're not really promoting that hard. But if you found it, you found it. For me personally, I was like, as I love Friendly Woods and Martin Scorsese. I was in heaven watching that. I wasn't quite in heaven watching Copenhagen Cowboy, but I was like, this is basically just for the heads. And I don't know how many more for the, for heads, the heads things, things not just NWR is going to get, but that Netflix is going to do. Like, it just doesn't really feel like it's a part of their long-term plan. I I don't know. I think that there was a little bit of a Trojan horse thing here. I do really think that he was like, I invented this shit and I'm coming back with my own vision of the Copenhagen underworld. And, you know, Miles Surrey in his piece on The Ringer was talking about whether or not this show was basically an example of not even style over substance, but style divorced from substance. So when I was watching the show, I was trying to be like, what is this show about? Not like, what is this show about where it's like, you, and is she an alien or a superhero? And, you know, what's going on with with Nicholas, this blonde Aryan guy? And so I tried to, like, kind of derive some some thematic ideas out of out of my experience with this. And Andy, I don't think that there's any spoilers in this in case I, I know that we have already kind of given away. You've already stuff. spoiled it, you monsters. Right. So I did think it was, in, you know, obviously... Refn starts his career with not only with the Pusher trilogy and Drive, but with Valhalla and with Bronson and the these sort of incredibly violent, masculine uh, archetypes in his films, and now is sort of starting since Neon Demon to move towards these female protagonists, these female hero types. Whether it's uh, was El Fanning in Neon, Neon uh, yeah. and honestly. Uh, Jenna Malone in Too Old to Die Young is sort of like this kind of like avenging angel. And the avenging angel thing comes into play in Copenhagen Cowboy, where you've got this sort of female superhero at the center of, of this of this story, for lack of a better term. Some other stuff that I saw coming out of this was honestly like uh, the hell that awaits immigrants as they arrive in the West. Almost all the characters in this show mm-hmm. are from somewhere else. They're not from... Denmark, they're either from the Balkans, they're from uh, Africa, they're from like all China. The, you know China, and the corrupting, honestly, slaughterhouse that is the West is kind of I think on display here. Even though it, I, I guess that is a little bit of a leap, but to me, it's no accident that every single person in this in this show is not. I'm from Denmark, and like this, yep. <laughs> like there, there, there's definitely something being said about this, and um. I do think that he thinks that the old world, that Europe or that Denmark is is essentially run by incestuous Aryan vampires. Um, pedophiles. Yeah, This pedophiles. is like the emergent theme is as one, this is one of the first things he's done co-written with a woman, as you said, Andy, Sarah, Sarah Isabella Jonsson. And the thing that has been happening in the last 10 years with his work is this fear as the father of a daughter that he has put his daughter, his young children in this vulnerable position in a world that is increasingly harsh to them, or at least he's having a consciousness about that. Ironically, or maybe in a tongue-in-cheek way, he has cast his daughter yes. in this amazing <laughs> role that I don't want to spoil for anybody who hasn't finished the show, but you know, his his wife has made a documentary about him. Like His conception of the male-female gender dynamic is super interesting if you really want to drill down into it. And I think everything you're saying is right, Chris, that like the whole primary metaphor is like a big fight between a man and a woman in a pigsty. Yeah. That's it. 
Like yeah. that's what you need to know about how he sees the world right now. And crucially, Refn casts himself in this show as a man, a designer, or a, a, a architect or something who can reconstruct someone's destroyed phallus. <laughs> um, so that's that's right. definitely like the world he sees. I mean, that's his vision. Andy, did you see any like this show is about like billboards on your drive down the road? Or did you? And Andy, if you could have your mm. phallus reconstructed <laughs> for a fee, would you do that? Well, that suggests a, de- a deconstruction, <laughs> yeah. right, at some point. Did that yes. not happen? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I usually don't talk about it on this podcast, but do tune in. Um, I, yeah, I think, but this is what I like about the show. Not the phalli, is that the plural? So much as the fallacies, but that this is someone's distinctly personal vision of the world. You know, it, it, it and I think I was, for whatever reason, maybe as <clears throat> a father of daughters, <laughs> receiving that transmission more acutely, yeah. right? But like, it, in the spirit of everything we've been saying, if we do put aside the industry talk and the concern trolling for the state of streaming, like, all I want from this stuff is someone to have a very personal, very individual point of view about the state of the world that I can at least recognize on some level, whether it's emotionally or in terms of the very bespoke dramatic lighting. And this did that for me. You know, I, I, it, it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. But I do think that the camera, at least through three, lingers on, like our point of view character. I mean, Mew, I should say the name of the actress because I think she's kind of awesome. Um, Angela Bundelovich. Yeah. Yes, a young Danish Appar- actress. Like, apparently somebody, they did street casting. They'd been looking for Mew and then like he just saw her and he was like, that's sh- it, that's her. And she is our window into this world, right? And she's just looking at everything with a, almost like a a passive ferocity that makes everyone uncomfortable because you can't hide anything from her. And I, and I think that the show is completely different if that's not your protagonist. I mean, it's, she's you know? she's essentially like Clint Eastwood meets Gene Seberg. You know, it's just an unfucking real like idea is to have like a doll like woman in a tracksuit who is also the man with no name. <laughs> I, I I just think that also we are at a weird moment in culture where we don't really get the perfect distillation of style and substance anymore. We get a lot of stuff. Yeah. And the ratios are often off. And we kind of have to, I think we do have to grab onto the ones that that have some meaning, even if they're not 100% all the way there. You know, I think in, in a perfect world, Sean, yeah, like this is everything that, that NWR poured into this is brought to bear on a script or a tighter story or something that is just sharper and deserving of this kind of aesthetic um, lavishment, you know? Um, I don't know if it's that, but it is, it's, it, I, I don't know. I, I was so interested because the way you guys were talking about it, I was like, I'm taking one for the team. And instead I was like, I'm really enjoying I, it. I kind of thought enjoyment feeling... isn't the word, but I'm really appreciating this. You right liked now, the, I mean, it's, you, you were, the Twin Peaks The Return is like one of your favorite things that ever got made. I, you're you're definitely oh, yeah. somebody who will every once in a while be like, I'm here for the ride. I think, Sean, like one of the things that was interesting and cool about this is that obviously he makes shows and movies that are very much in our wheelhouse, but there is no shot here that isn't drenched in neon. There is hardly any editing. A lot of it is 360 degree pans when like he's doing a, a conversation scene. The camera movement is wild. Yeah, it just turns. And I but but again, like I know that's his thing, but at the same time, like it's, he's that's using new. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's a, a, that's a more recent touch, yeah. 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 
but that's and his it, thing in this. I mean, and he does yeah, it repeatedly, yeah. he but, does it, but it, over it, and over again. But it's it, it it does make me think that he's using the 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 screen as if we're reading a comic book, right? He's scrolling across it and he's telling stories in an almost cartoony, not cartoony in the sense of Looney Tunes, but like we are moving across panels and seeing different. That's a really interesting in read of it. I hadn't thought about I, that. I, I, see, I thought of it as a as video game and or um, mm. kind of like TikTok. What you're, what's on your screen, like while holding your camera, kind of ID concept oh, of like I, constantly, like everything happening all around you, but not in the traditional like first person shooter way. More like in an open world video game where you're sort of like I, constantly looking around at what surrounds you. Have you guys seen? I don't know if you, either of you have ever used the Marvel Unlimited app where, to read comic books, but basically, like you know, if you've ever read a comic book, which probably most people at this point have. It's weirdly non-intuitive if you haven't done it before. I was watching mm. my daughters learn to do it. It's like, well, why is this box here with his face here? This thing is happening in a moment, but if you go across a horizontal panel, four people are reacting to it. So who do I look at first? And right. why are the words there? And that was, but on Marvel Unlimited, you can do something kind of interesting where you can zoom and scroll through box by box. Like it, it, it pulls out each box of like Doctor Strange making a face and then you see what he's doing to Dread Dormammu or whatever. And it's almost narrativizing something whose that's uniqueness is that it's an explosion of images and ideas and story on a page. Yeah. And that was my takeaway from those camera thing. It's just like all, when we start on someone sitting in a chair and pan to me watching the person in a chair and then pan to the door and someone enters, that's one panel in a comic. I mean, that, um, that's, it's, it's an interesting variation on something Spielberg's amazing at, which is camera movement instead of cutting. So like he'll do, you know, if it's a two-person conversation, he can do something in three camera moves that most people would take five cuts to kind of two broadcast. Two-shot pan, two-shot yeah. pan, going back and forth. Yeah. Exactly. And so Refinin, it's, it's a variation on that. The thing I liked about this is that it was kind of like it gets back to sign and signifier where you're like, at a certain point, you're asking yourself, why do I think Neon is cool? If Neon <laughs> is in every frame <laughs> of this show, does Neon lose its sort of, the narrative quality of Neon? You know, like, wait, like you start to get, you push it's, past. It's like when you say a word a lot and it's yeah, exactly, to lose all Exactly, <laughs> but like when the camera moves as slowly and glacially as the camera does in Copenhagen Cowboy, you start to ask yourself, well, camera movement usually denotes a significant dramatic moment, you know, like they'll do a push in because it's something somebody's thinking about, or there's usually like, it's trying to create a sense of like urgency in this, in the story. And it doesn't do that in this show. The camera like will follow her as she walks through the woods and nothing is of consequence in the woods. She's just walking through the woods. And so I kind of in the, in the very, like, I think specific context of just let this go for four hours on a Friday night. And sometimes I would look at my phone, but for the most part, I was pretty transfixed by this. The shit it started making me think about was really interesting. He will never get to do this again. He is out of fucking tech companies <laughs> to take $20 million right. from to make this. But Andy, I mean, I, there's a couple of things from the end of the series that I kind of wanted to ask about. If you want to okay. stay on. I, and you, I'm going to leave because okay. I'm going to watch the series. Um, Amazing. And I love I love talking to you guys. Just don't uh, don't have too much fun without me. Okay, <laughs> Andy, it's so nice to see you. I love the watch. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. It's, it's great to have fans on. You know, to really give us the straight <laughs> the straight scoop. All right. <laughs> Bye, Andy. All right. So it's just me and Sean now. Just the two of us. Okay. I'm not going to keep you keep you much longer. 
the fallacy of the phallus would have been a fitting subtitle for the series. <laughs> Maybe we could always call this episode of the pod that. Um, Hideo Kojima shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he speaking of video, the video game perspective. Exactly. Uh, he in a in a cameo um, towards the end of the series, alluding to a whole world of seemingly supernatural characters that could be involved in this show. The end of this season, I guess, because it ends more or less on a cliffhanger, shows the resurrected vampire sister of this guy, Nicholas, who has brought his sister back to life by, I think, sacrificing his mother or at least using her blood. Using her blood. I'm not sure if she lived or not. That all takes place in like a weird dreamscape where Nicholas is nude and also reconstructed from his really t- terrible pig accident. He just got an ass whooping. From yeah, he you. really got her. He's got. He really took one. He uh, got curb stomped. And so this Raquel is that I think is the name. Raquel, of, yes. yeah. That's Lola Corfixen, which is Refn's daughter. Shoots lasers out of her eyes at mm-hmm. Mew and a bunch of possibly ghost and or alien women who are all the victims of Nicholas's rampaging violence. And Mew seems upset by this, but we don't know whether or not Ra- Raquel is killed Mew is just starting fighting Mew like what's happening there is a a, a suggestion that there is a, a race of people called the Giants mm-hmm. or a, or maybe they're just a gang I don't know there's a lot of open questions at the end of this series which I thought was shocking so one I really <laughs> admire your ability to recreate all of those data points thanks because I will say in the final 30 minutes of the series I was quite confused yes which is one of the reasons why I think I walked away from it not as positive as I expected to be after the fourth episode, like you said. Totally. Um, Her walking through the woods, though, at like magic hour with all these people appearing wearing her tracksuit is pretty pretty amazing. Though It was beautiful. I, I Here's what I can't decide, and this is how I feel about almost everything that NWR does. Was he parodying the serialization of our superhero interconnected culture? I really don't think so. Or was he like, so. I have thought through the next several decades of Mew storytelling, and I'm teasing out where I could go with this. I mean, Mew could just be a traveling samurai. Like, you could do the continuing stories of right, this. Right, Zatoichi or, yeah. Yeah, and where, where and she Cub. just shows up somewhere and solves a, a, a criminal underworld dispute by, like, morally judging the heart of the people involved, which is essentially what the second half of this show is about, where she's working for this on behalf of this Chinese restaurant owner, Mother Hulda, and she's this this woman is trying to get her child back from an evil MMA fighter gangster named Chang. But is he gonna do that for like me and you and 79 other cinephilic incels? No. Like I don't <laughs> I mean the, for the, the, but this is this is this is like the torturous thing of like we got what we wanted and now we're like totally that's exactly what, what it is. <laughs> it's not it's that's why I used the phrase circling the drain earlier because I'm like, okay, so you just went as deep into your soul as you could possibly go, and what you showed me is what I thought was already there. Yeah. I, and that's you know, okay. I was trying to, this is pathetic, but I was like, I'm going to either tease this episode of the pod or like when I put this pod up on Instagram, I'm going to like share a bunch of images from this show. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I wonder which one I should do. Now, tragically, fucking Netflix and all these streamers now have made it so you can't screenshot 
anymore. I know. I hate that. They're such it. fucking. That's just give me give me a break. What do you so think annoying. I'm doing? You know, like I'm not putting together a flip book of your show, you know, and, and pirating. <laughs> but I was even going through like the Google image search of this show. I was like, I can't choose. Every fucking frame of this thing is outrageously composed and lit. It's so gorgeous. The shot of the fucking lasers coming out of Raquel's eyes. It's like out of the keep. It's so cool. I I would love for him to keep making stuff, but I, I do think I eventually wind up where you are, where it's like, I would love for this dude to get a, a 125-page script and just knock it out of the park. Totally. It, it doesn't have to not have those elements. I would be okay with it, with it having those elements. I just think that there is like diminishing returns on dialogue and story structure that he is just a little bit short. On. He's disinterested. Yeah. He's just disinterested. And, and having something, because the thing that he's good at too is stripping away. So if you give him something that he, but he needs to hold on to certain story beats, I think that that would be very helpful because this show shifts quite a bit and it actually is basically like three chapters. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's six episodes, but it's three stories. It's the stuff together. in the brothel in the beginning. And then it's like this, there's a sort of interim period where she's working for the Chinese restaurant owner. But the cool thing is in four, she goes into what I guess is Copenhagen and starts working as a, a street-level drug dealer to yes. pay off this debt to Chang. And she works with this guy named Danny who's trying to move up in the world of the of Copenhagen gangs. And there's like a Copenhagen gang war happening. And that's actually pretty sick. It, it feels closest to what you were saying, which is the sort of like the, the, the post-pusher pusher yeah. story yeah. that he's trying to tell. It's closest to that while having this kind of like elevated visual palette that Pusher doesn't have. You know, I like it. And anybody who is listening this far into a conversation about this, I would highly recommend it if you haven't already checked it out. I do think it is a complete curio in the history of, yeah. you know, streaming television. And I mean, it looks like a, it looks like a hundred million dollars. And part of that is just because he's so economical with the way that he frames. But I don't know. It's 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 weird. I don't know if it's commercially weird in the way that you want. I know the the best of him or David Lynch or you know the figures that we're talking about here. You know there was a time when Denis Villeneuve was making very odd enemy work like yeah. this. Enemy is this is enemy is kind of you know a little in conversation with a story like this, um, and he he shifted out of that to make significantly more commercial enterprise. Nick needs his arrival. He does. He, he needs I, he needs his like sweeter story. Yes. Will he go there? I. Kind of doesn't feel that way. Kind of feels not. like he's going to keep digging the sh- with the shovel. I just hope I see him again at Fat Dragon, chilling out in a pair of Toms, <laughs> eating by himself. Um, you know, I've interviewed him twice. He's a nice guy. He seems, I mean, I honestly, I'm, I wish he did more shit talking to promote these shows. Because yeah. the, both of these shows, I feel like he kind of was like, in his like, yes, well, I, I, I pitched it and I did it. And the show is, it, it's, it's open to interpretation. It's like, man, get your quitting on. Like, go. He seems more polite now than he used to. I know. Maybe maybe it's fatherhood has chilled him out. Not you though. You're just you're just more full of takes than ever. I'm all lit up. Uh, thanks to Sean. Thanks to Andy. Thanks to Kaya. Thanks to the listeners. Hope you enjoy Copenhagen Cowboy and the Golden Globes. And we'll be back with you on Thursday. Sean, thanks so much, man. Thanks, bud. 